Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. It's been 30 years since the Democratic Convention riots of 1968 pitted police and protesters against each other. But some fear history will repeat itself this week in Seattle as the World Trade Organization prepares to hold its first ever meeting on U.S. soil. We believe that all the protesters will be concentrated there. How many protesters are we expecting? Several thousand. It's taken two years to bring the World Trade Organization to Seattle, and we did it. We've got 13 major intersections downtown, and each of the affinity groups are going to shut these areas down. Now, how are we going to do it? Non-violently. That's right. What do you think is going to happen if you start smashing up downtown? Well, I think we're going to start a riot. Be tough on your issues, but be gentle on my town. Seize the intersections outside. Weren't the police preventing that? You bring in the National Guard, the whole community is going to become alarmed. Radio saying we got some 30,000 protesters down there. Some of our boys are having a hard time. You nervous, Jess? <laughs> Hell no. Protesters of Seattle have descended into chaos. I am not going to start gassing people, you understand me? I think we're past having that choice. were scenes from Battle in Seattle, the political action thriller reenacting the 1999 mass uprising against the convening of the Global Economic Servitude Syndicate, the World Trade Organization in that city back then, and with protests focused on workers' rights and economic justice, starring Woody Harrelson, Michelle Rodriguez, Ray Liotta, and Charlize Theron and Irish actor and the director of Battle in Seattle, Stuart Townsend, is our guest this week on Arts Express to talk about the rage against the way things are under capitalism and with a music backdrop courtesy of Massive Attack. And his latest film as well, the revisionist subversive western Apache Junction, a scary saga in the post-Civil War Arizona territories, where Townsend, as a mystery outlaw, along with assorted cutthroats and fugitives, inhabits a strangely designated safe zone in a mutually beneficial relationship, apparently, under the protection of the similar criminal enterprise known as the U.S. Army. Think, say, the U.S. military today, supporting, protecting, and enabling terrorists against rivals and third-world governments and like similar westerns these days, increasingly blurred lines between good lawmen and outlaws, not unlike the U.S. government in its depraved decline. Also of note is an unusual protagonist, newspaper reporter-turned-action hero, a woman, played by Scott Taylor Compton. First, some scenes from Apache Junction, in which country singer Trace Atkins gives it his all as a surly, malevolent U.S. Army officer, then Stuart Townsend. Miss Angel? 
camp's packed up and ready to hit the trail. Uh, we should reach the outpost by dusk, ma'am. Thank you, Mr. Follett. I've traveled hundreds of miles from a home to place some has referred to as hell. A beautiful hell, if you will. And tucked away into this corner of the world that few have ever been is a world that might only be fit for the devil himself. This is a land full of violence, where outlaws, pistoliers, deserters, and murderers have been calling home for the past few years. But now that the Great War has ended, the East has vowed to end terror and lawlessness across the land. So the capture and the execution of evil men begins as bounty hunters, scalpers, and even the army move in to exact their view of law and order upon these expansive yet bloody lands. The outpost is just right up ahead. Man's idea of civilization has arrived. Arizona is what they call it. Captain's up ahead here. Captain? More lambs to the slaughter? This here is Annabelle Angel. I don't know who she is, Ab. But I have a question to ask, Miss Angel. Do thoughts of death visit you often, or are you just simple-minded? I'm sorry, I don't understand. Simple-minded would be the answer then. The reason I ask is because no respectable woman in her right mind ventures to these parts. You understand my meaning now? I do. And my response is quite simple indeed. You are here to do a job, if I'm not mistaken? Get to the point. I'm as well, sir. It's the job that's made me travel all these miles. Writing an article for, what is it? The San Francisco Examiner. Right. And this stupid article is worth possibly being raped and murdered, shot, cut, otherwise maimed in this godforsaken desert. It is. <laughs> and this article, it's going to be on the men we're chasing down out here and the good job that my men are doing. Yes. Well. I don't have time to dig deeper into your logic, Miss Angel. And if any harm should come to you while you're here, it will not be the fault of the United States Army, and I better not read that in any newspaper. The responsibility of some crazy woman that wants to immortalize herself in print will not be on my head. I'm not trying to immortalize myself. Ebb Shore, the lay of the land. You write your article true. Miss Angel, you write about the cutthroats and savages that we're trying to exterminate from this land. Sir, I guarantee you that's exactly what I'll be doing. Good. <sighs> Crazy woman. Library. Hi, and welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Now, there seems to be a revival in the popularity of Westerns today, like Apache Junction. What are your thoughts about what accounts for that? To me, it makes a lot of sense because of what's going on in the world right now. You know, we have uh, uh, technology and you know, we have a technocracy basically engulfing all of our lives. Everyone, no escape for anyone. And um, we have COVID dystopia. And so the modern world is just kind of a rough place for all of us. I think it's traumatized most of us. And then you have the Western, which is this mythological American, you know, all-American story that's about like a time when there was freedom and pioneering spirit and, and sort of, I don't know, it just feels like it's also like a real fantasy because that time is gone. Um, you know, and what we have right now is a lot of dystopian zombie films and and that was great until 2020 hit. <laughs> and I think people are like, the pendulum has swung back and people are like, yeah, 
I don't really want to see that dystopian film right now. I want to <laughs> see a Western. I want to go back to endless freedom expanses and the desert and good guys and bad guys and simple stuff, you know? So I feel like that's why Westerns are coming back. And an unconventional aspect to the traditional Western in this film is the central figure of a woman, the San Francisco Examiner investigative news reporter, Miss Angel, who emerges as a surprise action hero and coming to the aid of what would traditionally be the conventional lone Western protagonist, you, as the outlaw. What can you say about that? Well, that's, I think, one of the, the reasons why I love the story is that it, it is a very traditional Western, but it has this great twist of a female protagonist, which is obviously not as pretty unusual. Uh, and, and she's a woman who's really on the search for truth, and she's willing to go and find the truth of, this, of what's really going on in this outlaw town. Like, what is this place that, that everyone's talking about in San Francisco in the city? And she's one of these intrepid journalists who's willing to go there and somewhat naively and get herself into a whole lot of trouble. And I think that's a great premise. Um, but what I also love is that it is, it is also a very traditional Western. It's a very pared down, you know, there's no special effects. Justin uh, Lee, the director, he's made a few of these Westerns and he's a huge Western fan. And I think his attention to detail and his love of just straight up Western, um, that's the backdrop of the story. So I love that it's kind of an unconventional story within a conventional kind of uh, traditional Western. I don't know if, if the journalist part was uh, based on anything. Uh, Apache Junction was a, somewhat of an outlaw town back in history. So, and you know, there was definitely, I think those kind of towns existed in, in that territory back in the day, so I'm sure Justin got his inspiration, but I, I'm not sure if it was Apache Junction itself, but I do know that town, uh, it did have some, some, uh, some Western history to it. So I'm not sure if, if, if it was an outlaw town itself or, or it was another town like that. Um, but I, you know, I don't know. It's probably more a question for Justin of whether, mm. like where he came up with the idea of a journalist uh, yeah. trying to find the truth in an outlaw town. I'm not sure where that came from. And would you say the recent surge in the popularity of Westerns, as we see in Apache Junction, may have anything to do with similar issues arising in the country now, like political divisions, North versus South, with the recent election and the proliferation of gun violence? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that Westerns imbibe this spirit. There's a spirit to them that I think is very romantic. For Americans, um, particularly now, because we're we live in such a different world, we live in such a modern world uh, that I do feel like the, the Western has, in a way, it is a fantasy to escape to, uh, rather than a, a kind of a social commentary. But um, you know, I mean, look, Westerns glorify gun violence. You know, they don't, <laughs> um, and they are more in a sense, kind of macho and, and uh, I, I don't know, I don't, I, I'm not sure it really pertains to modern social issues or, or wokeness that's going on all, all across America right now and divisions. I didn't see it that way to my, myself. I think that the fact that Justin has in the story a female protagonist is, is somewhat of a modern conceit. And I think that um, you know, and I'm sure there were like female figures that were that were very like unusual in that time. There's always been throughout history female figures that have been these incredible women in in all in all stories in all genres. Um, I also think that the fact that that my character Jericho Ford he has this uh, really deep relationship with a Native American Indian, you know, that's pretty unusual for that yeah. time, and that really for me was a very, uh, that was a kind of a key to my character when I was doing my own personal history of who this guy is, that central idea that he would befriend and, and have a very deep relationship with an Indian uh, really became kind of a, a strong point for who I, who I thought Jericho was because only a, a, an unusual character and possibly an outlaw would have had a relationship, I think, at that time because it was, it was, a, it was a time of more division 
And I wanted to ask you, Battle in Seattle is your first filmmaking venture about the historic protests against the WTO. Why was that important to you as your first venture into filmmaking? Um, I thought that those issues, the global justice issues and issues that uh, speaking out against corporate power and the corporate takeover of power and globalization itself, which was really a race to the bottom, gutting, you know, um, like gutted America, all the manufacturing jobs. It made billionaires, you know, richer and more billionaire class, uh, made the billionaire class expand and everybody has less. I mean, if, I think if you look at today, what's going on today, uh, it's, it's basically two decades or three decades of all the issues that people were standing up against and, and speaking out against in Seattle. Uh, institutions like the WTO, the World Bank, the IMF, you know, they, they were plundering the planet in a kind of soft power imperialistic way. And they have plundered the planet and we are all poor, far for it. And I think when I saw the police riots on the street, I just felt like that's only going to get worse. And it has. So I wanted to make Battle in Seattle as a document to what I felt like a really important moment in American history that was going to be forgotten but needed to be preserved because you were going to see a lot more of that. And I, I feel like we are, and I feel like most people are poorer than they were 20 years ago. And it's because of policies that people were speaking out against in Seattle. Well, it's certainly quite a film. And I wanted to ask you, growing up in Ireland, would you say there's a different perspective there about U.S. Westerns than here? I feel like, you you know, the Western is a universal mythology. So I grew up, like, I remember seeing my first Sergio Leone movie, uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And for me, it was just so glamorous and romantic because there's no deserts in Ireland. You know, the landscape was so barren and beautiful and threatening. And, and so, I, I don't know, I just feel like the Western, even though it's an American thing, uh, I, I do think the whole world loves Westerns. It's the same as, you know, like Game of Thrones is like, you know, castles and, and, and warriors. And that's more of like an Irish thing. But the whole world loves it. There's certain universal stories. And I do think the Western is a universal story, tale of good and bad. And regarding Miss Angel, her character brings up a dilemma plaguing investigative journalism in general, that when one is covering a story steeped in violence, do you keep covering the story? Or do you forget about why you're there and rush in to potentially help save lives? Any thoughts about that issue in the film? Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the way it is in the film is, is you see this, this somewhat naive woman, but very brave. You know, she, she has what I would consider uh, are the best traits of a journalist, which is to go and find the story regardless of the dangers. And um, yeah, I, I, I mean, to me, that's, she has that in her. Um, but of course, that leads to a whole lot of trouble um, in, in the story. And that's how she meets Jericho. And speaking of investigative journalists, you stars one in the upcoming Two Minutes to Midnight about U.S. false flag history around the world. Why was that a story you wanted to be part of? Oh, God, you know, that's a, that was a movie that I was going oh. to make. Um, but, but we never actually made it. Yeah, it's more. <laughs> so I can't help you on that one. All right. Okay. Well, any last word about Apache Junction? You know, I just think it's a, it's a really fun and traditional kind of old school Western shoot 'em up, but it does have uh, this, this really interesting female protagonist and great characters, great actors, and Grace Atkins and Thomas Jane and, uh, are, are in it. And I think it's a great movie because uh, our director, Justin Lee, he's, he's really a Western aficionado and he, his attention to detail uh, and his love of Westerns, I think really shines through. And, and it, because of that, we're able to capture uh, a spirit. The, the film has a spirit, I think, that's mm. worth watching. And any last word about Ricky Lee Reagan? Because he also happens to be a very prominent artist. Mm, yeah, he was just wonderful to work with. And uh, he actually, uh, he told me he's part Irish. There you go. So <laughs> before we, we shot, we, uh, I'm, I'm very much into uh, 
ancient um, sacred sites around the world. Yeah. And so before we actually went shooting, he took me to this beautiful Native American Indian site in uh, in Santa Fe, and we went into a kiva, and he sung a, a beautiful Native song, and we connected. Uh, our ancestors were in there, connected, uh-huh. lit, lit some uh, lit some incense, and created some magic together. So yeah, it was really beautiful working with him. And what is his tribe? I, he might have been Choctaw. I think he mentioned being Choctaw. Oh. All right. Thank you so much, Stuart Townsend, for calling into the show. Thanks. Thanks so much. Great chatting with you. Okay. Bye-bye. And Apache Junction is out now in release. And next on the show... Dobrados de vitória E tu verás Teu canto e bandeira Florescer a luz De um rubro amanhecer Milhões de braços Fazendo a nova história de pé Hi, this is Jack Shalom, the longtime head of the Portuguese Communist Party. Álvaro Cunhal spent many years of his life in Portuguese fascist prisons. Later, in exile, from the 1950s onward, he wrote novels, novellas, and short stories about Portuguese life under fascism, which was from 1927 to the early 1970s. In particular, he wrote of the leading role of the Portuguese Communist Party in the anti-fascist struggle for almost 50 years. To create a literary identity apart from his political renown, he employed the pen name Manuel Tiago. Author and translator Eric Gordon set himself the task of translating Kunhal's work into English, and so far, the books Five Days, Five Nights and The Six-Pointed Star have appeared from international publishers. The third floor has now just been issued with five more books on their way. I'll be reading an excerpt from the third floor, but first I want to quote a few sentences from Eric Gordon about the work. Quote, One can only stand back in reverent admiration and gratitude towards those PCP members who sacrificed virtually every personal pleasure in life, in some cases life itself, for the greater cause of a democratic Portugal. These fictional works by Manuel Tiago bring us closely, intimately, into their clandestine world, leaving for us the legacy of that time and the demands it made on committed militants. If the time should ever come, anywhere, when this level of organized underground resistance is called for, then pick up these books and study how it was once done." Unquote. The third floor has four stories. They all offer profound insight into the Portugal Álvaro Cunhal knew so well. The first story, The Third Floor, is a prison break tale. In the excerpt I'll be reading, the communist prisoners have worked out a messaging system with the party by writing on little bits of cigarette papers and smuggling them in and out under the buttons of shirts in the dirty prison laundry. A trio of prisoners who are secretly working on a prison break have just received back a message from the party. And now, the excerpt from The Third Floor. There was good news. The stone ledge led all the way to the roof of the neighboring building. We have to closely examine this possibility, said Antonio. Very hard to get there, very complicated, Felipe observed. Wouldn't it be worth going back to the idea of escaping through the grated window in the dining hall? Unworkable, said Vitor. That had been the first consideration. But soon they concluded that getting up on the floor in the middle of the night and going over to the dining hall window to saw the bars, they'd be in direct view of their companions getting up to use the washrooms. Then let's study escaping on the stone ledge and the neighboring roof, Antonio insisted. 
Vitor came upon Antonio in the empty washroom performing some weird exercise. Turned to the wall, pressing his whole body against it from head to toe, the open palms of his hands at shoulder level, he went creeping along in that position. At first sight, Vitor thought his comrade might need some help. What is it? Are you feeling ill? he asked. But he noticed that Antonio just continued inching onward. Surprised by his friend's voice, Antonio turned around, smiling with satisfaction. It's possible, he whispered. What are you talking about, Vitor asked, not knowing what he was seeing? They left the washroom to take a walk on the floor, and Antonio explained. He was trying to establish if it was or was not possible to glide the length of the building facade on the stone ledge whose existence the comrades had confirmed. Impossible, Vitor asserted. Or not, Antonio retorted. Vitor shook his head. No, impossible for me, he said. If that's the decision, you guys can continue. But I can't join you. For a long time, I've had vertigo in high places. We'd be kidding ourselves. I'd fall without a doubt, and you'd be dragged away with me. He added, if that's what you want to do, I'll help you every way I can. Sawing the bars, covering up the cut, helping both of you in everything, whatever I can do. He hesitated and said further, Given that this is my problem, I don't want you to give up on this idea, but I have weighed it well. It seems to me too dangerous and risky. It's one thing to do an exercise here against the wall, but it's quite another at the height of the third floor, with no support, to proceed along a stone ledge only the width of your foot. Antonio explained that, speaking for himself, it was just an experiment. They still needed to continue discussing with the party the hypothesis of jumping to the street. But this possibility, too, needed to be studied. Picking up on this idea, and with Felipe's agreement, in the next message out to the party, they posed some new questions. Where, with more precision, did the ledge end? At what distance from the roof? Mid-air? Near any window to the attic? At what distance from the last graded windows of the third floor? Two weeks later, the response came. The stone ledge ended at the neighboring building next to the stairway skylight. The saw Vitor asked Antonio. You said to leave that to you. Did you take care of it? How? Take it easy, Vitor. I already have it. The truth is, he already had it when they transferred him from Peniche to the third floor. At the fort, they were also planning an escape. At that time, the party had sent him the saw, not in a cake baked for that purpose, nor hidden in a bag of clothes. Those methods had already been discovered and couldn't be counted on. It was inside a pair of shoes with an inner sole. He had it right now on his feet. In his locker he kept another pair of shoes, saving them for the time when he'd have to dismantle this pair to retrieve the saw. So, take it easy, Vitor, he repeated. I already have it. Vitor was not satisfied with this response. They would have to look at length into various questions first. The size of the saw, eventually some kind of wooden handle to protect the fingers, the places on the window bars to be sawn, how to cancel out or diminish the noise, calculate how many days it would require to saw the bars on the chosen window. And not only would they have to study all these questions, but begin without any loss of time, because it would certainly take many days to complete such work. Antonio agreed. One thing was a given. 
The most complicated and daring scheme was now the only one considered possible. That is, tiptoeing along the stone ledge to the neighboring building. Like Vitor, Felipe still had doubts about this plan. It may be too difficult, he voiced. Oh, at least you're saying difficult and not impossible, Antonio replied. Come with me. And he proposed a visit to the washroom. Felipe would see how Antonio did it, and he could try doing the same. With the two of us inside, we'll have to be very quick so no one enters and surprises us. You see how I do it. And then, when you try it too, I'll stand outside and cough to signal that someone's coming. Antonio dexterously repeated his experiment for his comrade. Did you have a good look? Pressed to the wall, head to foot, palms spread on the wall at shoulder height, and advancing, sliding your feet angled against the wall, toes out, heels in, as though you were on that stone ledge the comrades told us about. I don't know if I can. If you're not afraid of heights, I'm sure you can do it. He left Felipe by himself. No one appeared. After a short time, Felipe came out. It's amazing if that's the way it's going to be. It'll be a cinch. A cinch? No. But we will do it, Antonio corrected. En cada recanto da patria Já se ergue o clamor popular Anunciando a nova alborada And you've been listening to an excerpt from The Third Floor by Manuel Tiego, real name Álvaro Cunhal, translated by Eric Gordon and published by International Publishers. Thanks to Mr. Gordon and International Publishers for the rights to produce this excerpt. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And the music you just heard was The People United Will Never Be Defeated and Venceremos, We Shall Prevail, performed by Culture Action, Voices in the Fight. And now on Arts Express. You know, I've been hearing about this thing called the Depression. You hear about that? Well, that's, that's, the, that's the word they got for this empty feeling, the pit of my stomach. I don't know. Seems to me it's just about the same as it's always been. I always did have to bust my ass to get work. Once I got it, I couldn't seem to keep it. Me and the bosses never did seem to get along. Well, you can take it from Big Bill Shelley. Look around you. Ain't nobody gonna protect us except ourselves. Railroad took it away from us. We gotta get it back. Organize. Unionize. You don't expect strike breakers like McIvers and their cop friends over there to look out for you, do you? Well, listen, but hey, listen, there's been a lot of pushing around here. I say it's time we started pushing back. Let's hear it. We're going to this railroad, right? We're going to get them, right? We're going to live like men. Oh, we ain't going to live at all. We're going to take that reader railroad and we're going to smash it. We're going to show them we ain't just playing. Okay, and to start with, we're going to take that bastard McIver and his friends right over there and we're going to grind him in the gravel. Let's go. How'd you get here, honey? <laughs> Box car. <laughs> well, I'll be. Hey, you look kind of hungry. Have you had any dinner? 
Oh, I'm as full as can be. Well, how about a little dessert? Just thank God you came down amongst Union men. Most of these men have been eating wild greens since August. Pilot tops. Weeds like cows eat. Well, I want something I ain't never had. How are you gonna get that? Guts and luck. <laughs> luck? Hell. Luck is being a Vanderbilt or a Carnegie. Just grabbing something good when it comes by. And those were scenes from Martin Scorsese's 1972 Great Depression-era classic, Boxcar Bertha, starring the late David Carradine as a union firebrand and Barbara Hershey as Bertha and our guest coming up. The mythic Boxcar Bertha has been described as, quote, the daughter of a free-thinking Kansas woman and a railroad foreman, both arrested for refusing to marry and spending her first six months in jail where, quote, Father caught up on his reading, and Mother did the jail cooking, sewed, nursed me, and studied Esperanto and socialism. Hershey also delves into her latest film, The Manor, a gothic horror tale touching on, as well, life under capitalism, and how under a system we're making choices as Hershey's character faces to improve her lot is inevitably at the expense of others. First, some scenes from the manor, then Barbara Hershey. I wasn't ready for this change, but my prognosis isn't good. You don't belong here. Don't worry, I'll be okay. Whatever's coming next, I don't want my family to see me like that. How do you like your new home? It's beautiful. Takes a bit of time, but you'll fit right in. Anyone there? Are you okay? Why won't you believe me? I need to get out of this place. The only way you're getting out of here is in a box. Hello and welcome. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Now, The Manor is much more than just a horror movie, with both the striking emotional and psychological nuances of your character, but also how your character Judith rages against real issues regarding the elders, physical and psychological abuse and exploitation, as in nursing homes. What are your thoughts about that? Well, yeah, I think it touches all of that in, you know, in an interesting way in that it's, it doesn't hit the audience, I don't think, over the head with it. It, mm. it sort of is something that is happening and it's wrapped in a horror film and wrapped in humor. And so it definitely all of that's going on under the surface and, uh, and is being dealt with by the, by the filmmaker, yeah. And your character has such a determined and visceral anger about the way things are regarding seniors. Did you bring any of that into your rebellious performance from the real world and anger about anything out there? Well, I always, you know, characters I look for inside myself. So every character I play, I have some, you know, very strong relationship with. Um, and I'm always using my life and, and, you know, my feelings. So... I did in this case as well, sure. Also of note in the manner is the cross-generational depth of your emotional connection to your grandson, and you had a similar relationship with Doris Day in Six Will Get You Egg Roll. What can you say about Doris Day and memories of working with her? No, there, yeah, there was no impact. She was very lovely, though, and, you know, very nice to me. And speaking of rebel characters of whatever generation, one of my favorite portrayals of yours is in Martin Scorsese's Boxcar Bertha. Looking back, what did that film and that character mean to you? Oh, it's interesting. I hardly ever talk about that film. Um, 
Well, the main the main thing that that I loved about it that he did was instead of doing what probably Roger Corman and AIP wanted us to do, which was to be boxcar Bertha and stand there with guns and I don't know um, have a lot of sex and violence in it. Marty made the film about people who kind of unwittingly bump into each other and and stumble around in the dark <laughs> trying to find their way through life. Um, and I loved that they were vulnerable and not typical uh, cliched images of of, uh, of robbers. And they just seemed hapless to me and endearing and for that reason. Um, and, you know, and then, of course, the revelation of, of getting to know Marty, even at that early stage, I could see how talented he was. I, I remember because we had no budget and they shot it four weeks but I remember there was this shot where uh, there was supposed to be a, a, an explosion of a plane crashing, and there was no budget for an explosion, uh, let alone a plane crashing. And what he did was he lit a, he had me stand next to a car, and he had someone light a match in the reflection of the car and had me react, and uh. later they laid in the sound. And it was so brilliant and so simple, and so and he would constantly come up with just brilliant suggestions like that. Yeah. It was so impressive. And speaking of rebel elders, this seems to be a refreshing new element in movies lately, counting impressive and determined rebel elders who happened to be women last year as well. Diane Wiest in I Care A Lot and Cicely Tyson, who just passed away earlier this year, in Tyler Perry's A Fall From Grace. Any thoughts about that? Well, I, I hope it's a new trend in that, in that um, you know, people as they get older are still people. And if anything, they're better, probably, if you live your life with your eyes open, you've learned a bit, um, so that they're interesting characters. You know, you look at something like Game of Thrones, where they have, which I was a big fan of, and they had characters of all ages, and you love them all. Um, this prejudice toward older people you know, needs to be shattered because we're interesting. And I, I'm convinced people of all ages, you know, would be interested in the human being that we are. Yeah. Now, getting back to The Manor, written and directed by Axel Carolyn, would you say there's anything unique about a woman directing a horror movie? Um, I, you know, she's such a rabid fan of horror that it's hard to, to even differentiate. <laughs> I mean, to say that with with Axel... Um, no, I, 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 again, I look forward to the time when, you know, it doesn't even matter what sex somebody is who directs a film, um, or what race somebody is. It just seems we need to get past all of that. And, uh, so I accept totally that, you know, women in all kinds of genres, just people. <laughs> and what about that Carolyn is originally from Belgium? Would you say that she brings to this film a stirring and vibrant yet subtle mood to the manor with perhaps a European Gothic flavor? <laughs> well, you just said it. Are you um, um, yes, at <laughs> all. So yes, I do. <laughs> but she had a strong visual, what she wanted. And, uh, you know, like I said, she's a huge, huge horror fan. And uh, so her excitement about that genre, you know, permeated the set. And how would you compare and contrast Carolyn with, say, Scorsese directing you in Boxcar Bertha and The Last Temptation of Christ, in which you played Mary Magdalene? Um, I don't, because everybody's an individual. Their directing style's so different. Um, there's just no comparison. I, I wouldn't know how to, you know. Mm. Their directing styles is as different as they are as human beings. And in your very prolific and eminent career, what are some moments that perhaps stand out most for you? Um, the making of The Last Temptation of Christ was, was very personal. It was one of my favorite books from when I was very young. And I told Marty about the book when I was doing Boxcar Bertha. I could see how talented he was, but I also knew that he uh, was very religious and thought he'd be interested in this, this subject, which was... Uh, fascinating to me and touching to me and sure enough he was <laughs> so that movie meant a lot to us um we had no money and and you know very little time to shoot and 
you know, we it was a very humble production and very powerfully meaningful to me in my life. And how was the last temptation of Christ personal for you? Well, and that it was my one of my favorite books from when I was a teenager, and also because I I I gave the book to Marty, so it felt very personal. And any last word on the manor? <laughs> if uh, if I I don't I don't know I'm not a salesperson I can't say that I just hope people have fun watching it and get into it and uh, you know it's a safe arena to get scared in. I I think I think that the thing that impressed me about uh, Axel's writing of those characters is I didn't feel like it had to do with an older person or a younger person had to do with two human beings who really related and really loved each other and age wasn't an issue uh, with them which I really liked. Yeah. And anything else coming up for you? I did an independent film with Lena Headey who starred as Cersei in um, Game of Thrones, um, and it hasn't come out yet, and it's called Nine Bullets. I haven't seen it. I do not know anything about the final <laughs> film, but I did that since the manor. I, uh, you know, like many actors, everybody hadn't acted in a while because of the pandemic, and uh, that so that <laughs> anything was attractive to me on that level. But um, also, I wanted to work with. Uh, Lena, who I admired a lot, and she did not disappoint. She's fantastic. And when Barbara Hershey looks in the mirror, what does she see? You know, an image of me. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't see myself in perspective. I'm just subjectively living my life. Um, I'm glad that I've got the opportunity to... Uh, you know, experience my desire to act, which is just as strong as ever. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, the fact that I've had the chance to do that and, and get to the chance to do that makes me really happy. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much, Barbara Hershey, for calling into our show. Okay, thank you. Okay. Bye. And The Manor is out now in release online. And we'll go out now with the Arts Express screening room with the story of Rocket Man, a mixed media excerpted presentation about Jeff Bezos and his little rocket, written and performed by political analyst, poet, songwriter, and self-described digital street philosopher Caitlin Johnstone. Jeff made himself a uniform of a blue so calming and tranquil. Grew his hair out like Jean-Luc Picard so he wouldn't remind us of Dr. Evil. His little rocket with his little cap catapulted him into the sky. The whole thing took 11 minutes. A $5 billion carnival ride. It took the energy of a thousand homes and thousands of poor employees. Mountains of garbage, islands of trash and the complete annihilation of ecology. Oh, but for one bright moment, Bezos showed us his vision for the future of our children using technology. Amazon warehouses churning out landfall in the sky. Utopia, just ignore the torture of poverty. Just ignore. The forest burnt black. Just ignore the death of the ocean. Just ignore the lack of insects and the silence of birds. Just ignore the red tide of pollution. See, Bezos reckons all of his plebs should live in the sky and slip out a trillion babies. A trillion babies would mean a thousand Einsteins, forgetting that Einstein was created by privilege in time. Time to relax, to dream up something new. He wasn't slaving in a warehouse, you noob. Jeff wants to keep the planet for himself. He will designate it light residential. Because he loves Earth, he wants all of us off it, so he can live the life of a king presidential. 
at the press conference. In his little blue suit, his head gleaming with the emissions of ecstasy in a rare moment of humility, he acknowledged that his pursuit was a gift from all of his employees. I want to thank you for living hand to mouth, he said. And I want to thank all of you aspirationals who make it their job to yell at my employees and shame them for doing a job that needs doing. Your check is in the mail. Ah, just kidding. I am the greatest middleman, pounding his chest with admiration that the world has ever known. I've never done a day of hard labor. Just creamed the fat off of others. And if I'm being honest, all I do is lay around and ponder how to parasite more energy from the workers. My job is great. You should do it too. And that's the story of Rocket Man, the king of the world. Currently, he took all of the money and all of the power, but none of the responsibility for the many and varied challenges we face. As we stare down the extinction of the human race, he doesn't care. He's only thinking of what color that he'll wear on his next space lab expedition. And Sean Stone's many works, including articles, songs, art, poetry, and video, are online at CaitlinJohnstone.com. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.